One of my favorite stories is a short story written by Hans Christian Andersen. It's entitled, The Emperor's New Clothes. I'm sure you are familiar with it if you heard it as a child. For those of you who have never heard this very interesting short story entitled, The Emperor's New Clothes, let me give you a brief summary. It is the story of a very vain emperor who hires two clothes makers, two weavers, to make for him the most beautiful of clothes. But these clothes makers that he hires are actually con men. And somehow they're able to convince the emperor that they're going to use a very special fabric. In fact, so special a fabric that only those who are worthy will be able to see how beautiful this fabric is. For those who are unworthy, it will be invisible to their sight. Anyone who is stupid, anyone who is incompetent, anyone who is unfit for their position would not be able to see this beautiful fabric. Well, the con lies in the fact that these clothes makers are actually only pretending to design and manufacture the clothes for the emperor. And while they're doing so, no one, not even the emperor or his ministers, can see the alleged clothes, quote-unquote, but they all pretend to see it for fear that they would appear to be unfit for their position or incompetent or deemed stupid. Everyone continues to give glowing reports of this invisible clothes which they all pretend to see. Finally, after a few weeks, the weavers report that the emperor's clothes are finished and they pretend dressing the emperor using minds to which the emperor goes along. He wants everyone in his kingdom to see his new clothes, this most beautiful of fabric. And so he gathers the people and he marches in procession before his subjects, completely without clothes. Well, the town folks go along with the pretense, they themselves not wanting to appear unfit for their position or incompetent or stupid, pretending to see what is really not there. Finally, in the honesty of a child, a child in the crowd blurts out, but the emperor isn't wearing anything. To which the crowd then takes up this chant and begins to laugh at the emperor. The emperor realizes the assertion that he has been fooled and he assesses that what they say is true. But here's the sad part about the story. He continues to walk down the procession. He has too much at stake having bought into the hype of this special fabric. It's a story that even resonates in our generation today. Because such is the condition of men and women who sadly fall into the trap of hype. The trap of believing in their own hype. The trap of getting caught up into the hype of others. Hype is a word that describes extravagant claims about a person or a product. And the verbal form to hype is to blatantly, unashamedly promote it. From the mere definition of this word, it would seem that we as Christians should be careful to avoid hype. But sadly, it is Christians themselves who fall right into the trap of hype. We too fall into the personality culture 
of how we buy into the hype of a certain pastor or a certain preacher or a certain teacher who is very popular and he or she can say no wrong or do no wrong. Even spiritually, we fall into the hype of a mega church that is teeming with thousands of people so popular being the place to be. And therefore, it must be the perfect church. There are so many people going there, and yet they can do no wrong, but sadly, they teach the wrong theology. Or perhaps we buy into the hype of a product, a miracle product that seems to work for everyone. It doesn't work for you, but you want it to work. You've bought into the hype. Truth be told, the hype versus reality is as different as night and day. It is a problem today, especially as it deals with our spirituality. We buy into the spiritual depth of someone, and yet when we are truly to assess their spirituality, or even our own, we find out that they're actually quite shallow spiritually. It was a problem, it is a problem, excuse me, today it was a problem in the time of Jesus. And that's why he will teach how not to believe the hype, how to filter out the hype, and he does so through a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We're going to exposit verses 9 to 14. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 as we continue our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. Look with me in your Bibles, Luke chapter 18, we begin in verse 9. Verse 9 gives us the parable's audience, look with me. And Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Right off the bat, the gospel writer Luke tells us, That the intended audience of the following parable is for those who think they are more righteous than others. Those who believe that they are better than others. Those who look down on others. Note the phrase, who trusted in themselves, meaning as they look down on others, thinking themselves better. It is the trusting of their own righteousness and their own assessment from their own perspective. It is not the assessment of others that they are better than someone else. It is their own assessment that they are better than someone else. I wonder if many of us, if not most of us, are guilty of this. We see many types of these people, even in the church, people who are holier than thou types of people who think they can do no wrong, can never be corrected, have nothing to be criticized over. They come to church wondering and hoping that the sermon that day is for their friend or their family member, not for themselves. These types of people are usually judgmental of others without looking at themselves And so most of us would naturally fit into this parable's intended audience because at some level, all of us see ourselves better than someone else. Not realizing that we do so through the bias of our own perspective and filters. When you come to church, do you believe that the one sitting next to you is worse off than you? Do you believe that those in the church should pray more, should evangelize more, should disciple more, and yet forgetting to look at yourself to see if you are doing those things. 
My friends, if you have a tendency to judge others with a critical spirit, if the first thing you do when you go home after coming to worship is to criticize some aspect of the worship service, then you think too highly of yourself, and then this parable is for you. Jesus begins the parable. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Jesus begins this story by noting two men, two men with their occupation have come to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. For those of you who don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee is a religious leader in the time of Jesus who was an expert of the law, and the other, a hated tax collector. The Jewish people didn't like tax collectors because they thought that they were traitors. They had sold themselves out to the Roman government. Most of the tax collectors of Jesus' time were very wealthy, and they weren't wealthy because of their job. They were wealthy because of the corruption. And let me put it in our modern context. Let's say you see a pastor walking into the church, and a tax official in the U.S., we call them an IRA agent, IRS agent, in the Philippines, a BIR. Or you can substitute that for any government official. You see a pastor and a government official coming to church to pray. And in, in that scenario, if I were to ask you, who's the more spiritual one? I think most all of us would assume or reply, well, it's the pastor. The pastor is the more spiritual one. If I were to ask you the question, of those two, who do you think the Lord would listen to? Whose prayer will the Lord listen to and answer? You would say it would be the pastor's prayer. The reason for this assessment is because we as people make a lot of assumptions. We make assumptions about people on practically everything. What they wear, what occupation they have, what they do. And so we think the pastor must be holy because their occupation is such that they work in the church. And because they guide us spiritually, they must be close to God. They must have an intimate walk with God. But my friends, that would be an assumption. Because there are pastors who live in sin. There are pastors who are corrupt. There are pastors who do not have a close walk with God, even though they preach about it. Yes, they would be hypocritical, but they are really good at hiding it from you. On the other hand... We assume that government officials must be corrupt because they work for an agency or a system that is systemically corrupt. But we all know, and I know many personally, who work in the government sector who are genuinely honest people. They're they are great people, good people, moral people, outstanding people trying to make a difference. But we all make assumptions. We make assumptions about people in general, not only in their occupation, but in the way they look. We make assumptions about people from their hairstyle. If you have a hairstyle like mine, conservative, parted, combed well, you look at someone like me and you say, he looks like a pastor. He must read his Bible every day. Look at his hairstyle. He must obey his parents. Look, he has a hairstyle like his dad. Even his kids have the same hairstyle. It must be the hairstyle of a holy person. And then we look at someone else. Perhaps they shave their hair. I'm not talking about those who have no hair, but uh, we know you have no control over that. But one who chooses to shave their hair, 
or they decide to color their hair pink or green and we look at that person and we say oh that person must be a rebel I look at their hairstyle and I know that person they don't read the Bible they must ride a motorcycle as if hairstyle and hair color can determine and say to the world all those things and yet you know what I'm talking about there is a look for a good person and there is a, a look for a rebel or let's say you have a tattoo or a man has a earring or a woman has multiple earrings you would say ah that person is a rebel that person must not love God and you look at a person who doesn't have a tattoo or a man that doesn't have an earring and then sometimes we say well then that means they must be faithful to their spouse and they live a righteous life or sometimes through the action oh you go to church every week you must be an outstanding citizen you must have an intimate walk with God well let me tell you there are people who come to church every week and they live their life in sin while these assumptions we make are things we do based on outward appearance action and occupation it may surprise you to know that God doesn't care much about those things in this age of grace if he cared so much about our hairstyle he probably would have put three chapters in Romans about how to comb your hair but he doesn't excepting for a few verses that talk about modesty and looking for the glory of God the Bible doesn't say much about appearances but the Bible cares much more about the condition of one's heart now you may throw me the Old Testament but we don't live in the age of the law anymore in our dispensation we live in the age of grace it is not a license to sin but yet both in the Old and New Testament God is more concerned with the heart you remember when they were going to select David when God wanted to select David as the next king of Israel his father marched out all of his older brothers all kingly looking and Samuel told his father God does not look at the outward appearance he looks at what's in the heart so it is in the case of these two in the story they come to pray and God is going to care more about their attitudes through the way they pray from how they pray we're going to draw out three criteria three filters for how we can cut through the hype how we can make proper assessments of one's spirituality take a look with me at verses 11 to 12 and then 13. the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess verse 13 and the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner the first area of comparison is the way they come to pray in verse 11 we're told that the Pharisee 
stood and prayed thus with himself, while the tax collector moved far away from the view of many, off in a corner to pray. The reading seems to indicate that in contrast to the tax collector, the Pharisee stood in a place of prominence so that all could see that he was praying. Now, his standing doesn't necessarily reflect his pride as standing was common in the ancient Near East when one prays. But he stands where he is in the center probably of the courtyard so that all would see that this righteous Pharisee was praying to God. While the tax collector in his humility prayed off to the side. The Pharisee's attitude toward God was in the wrong place. We can say it's fair to note that the Pharisee feels as if he deserves to come before God. It's as if it should be a privilege for God to hear the prayer of someone as righteous as him. For him, God is simply to help his reputation so that people will see him as being spiritual as they all assume he would be. But it was all for a show. There are many people, whether businessmen or politicians or government officials or people in the public sector or the private sector or even churchgoers who only go to church because they somehow want to be associated with God to tell the people, God is on my side. God and I, we're buddies. He's on my side. And so we make it a point to tell people, to show people that we go to church. Tax collector, on the other hand, is by himself, off to the side. We're told that his head is bowed, his eyes downcast. He couldn't even find it appropriate to lift his eyes towards heaven, feeling unworthy to be in this holy place. He beat his breast, indicating a prayer of anguish. True humility exhibiting a spirit of contriteness. Just from the actions of the Pharisee and the tax collector, whose prayer do you think God will be more prone to listen to? You don't have to guess. The scriptures tell us. Psalm 34 verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. In the second part of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, here's what the scripture says. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. You see, in the contrast of how the Pharisee and the tax collector come to pray, in their approach to worship, it shows forth an underlying question. Of how they view God. And my friends, that's number one if you're taking notes. The first criteria to know how to cut through the hype of a person's claim of spirituality. The first criteria that you can use as a filter for your own self-assessment of your own spirituality. Is for you to ask the question, how do I view God? How do others view God? If you want to know the real person... In their spiritual level, ask how they view God. Do they see God or do you see God as simply a God who is your servant, there to do things for you? Now, you never call God a servant, but that's how you treat him. 
You only call God when you need him, when you have a request, just like your maid. Call him when you need him. When you don't need him, you push him away. Or instead, you see as God, one who is truly worthy of our worship, truly sovereign, truly omnipotent in all that he does, worthy of our surrender in our, the yielding of our life. When people claim that they are spiritual, do they point you to God? Do they point you to Jesus? Or these people who claim to be spiritual, do they point you to themselves? That's a great filter. Because if you view God as the almighty God, you would never point others to you. Because you are not a God, little g. There is one great God, the only true God. And if you have a high view of him, you will point people to him. But if you have a very low view of God, that he's just your buddy and your genie, that, that grants you all of your wishes and desires, then you will naturally point others to you. Look at how God has blessed me. That's what people do. What happens... When God tells you no, that's also a good qualifying question for how you view God. What if God says no in your life? Will you cast him aside? Will you get angry? Will you rebel? Will you get mad at him? I came across this poem this week written by Claudia Weintz. The poem is entitled, And God Said No. Let me read it. I asked God to take away my pride, and God said no. He said it was not for him to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to make my handicapped child whole, and God said no. He said her spirit is whole, her body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and God said no. He said that patience is a byproduct of tribulation. It isn't granted, it's earned I asked God to give me happiness, and God said no. He said he gives me blessings. Happiness is up to me. I asked God to spare me pain, and God said no. He said suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow, and he said no. He said I must grow on my own, and he will prune me to make me fruitful. Then I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. And God said, ah, finally, you have the idea. But when God says no to your requests, do you still desire to worship him? I bet you the tax collector would, but I bet the Pharisee would not. Because how we view God is a great filter question for how spiritual we are. How do you view God? Is he as awesome as you sing about him? Is he as great as you proclaim he is? Or is he just your servant that you call when you need him? Look at the words of the prayer of these two who have come to pray. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now look how the tax collector prays, verse 13. 
God be merciful to me. Can you imagine the audacity of this Pharisee thanking God that he's not like other people? Thank you, God. I'm, I'm so much better than everyone else. Have you ever prayed that? I hope not. But this Pharisee really believes this. Why? Because the Bible tells us in verse 11 that he is praying silently to himself. Now, if he's praying publicly, audibly, can you imagine if I were to get up here on a Sunday morning and I prayed in, during the pastoral prayer, Lord, thank you for making me so special and so cool, way above these lowly common churchgoers. You'd run me out of town, and rightfully so. I may think that, which I don't, but I could think that, and you'd never know. So a private prayer really reveals the heart of what someone thinks. And the Bible tells us that this Pharisee really believes he's so much better than everyone else. He praises silently, Lord, thank you. I'm not like the swindler. I'm like, not like the one who's corrupt. I'm not like the adulterer. And perhaps when he sees a tax collector off to the side, oh, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that guy. I'm better than everyone else. I'm deserving of it. A feeling of entitlement oozes out of this Pharisee's prayer. As if what he got from God was because he is good and he is deserving of it. And then the tax collector simply prays, God, be merciful to me. Extend to me what I do not deserve. Show me mercy. Show me grace. From the words of their prayer, you see that these two individuals have opposing view of grace. And that's the second criteria, number two, for how we cut through the hype and self-assess and assess others on one's spirituality. Number two, how does one view grace? How does one view grace? That's an important question because how one view, views grace shows truly how spiritual they are. You know, there are many people who really believe that God's grace is owed them. They are deserving of a position. They are deserving of their house. They are deserving of their car. They are deserving of their blessing. In comparison with other siblings, oh, look at my brother. He ventured off and his business is failing because he didn't put in the hard work. My business is flourishing because I put in the hard work and I'm smarter than that person. That's how we think. And yeah, we may give a throwaway line, thank you, God, for your grace. But in the back of our, our minds, we're thinking, that is because of my two hands. That's because of my brilliant mind. And if that business of my friend fails, it's because they deserve it. To them, and these types of people, God's grace and mercy is owed them. But then it's no longer called grace. It's as if it's called an obligation from God. But then there are others, like the tax collector, where they believe that everything they have and everything they are is from God. This tax collector in this story would have been very wealthy. Tax collectors in the ancient Near East were very wealthy. And yet, what is his prayer? Be merciful to me. Extend your grace and mercy to me, things which I do not deserve. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you woke up walked around your house and said, thank you, God, for this house that I have. If you haven't done that lately, you may be more like the Pharisee than you think. You say, well, pastor, I just forgot. No. When was the last time 
you woke up and you thank God for your house. However shabby and small it is, however messy it is, thank you, God, for this house. Thank you for running water. Thank you, Lord, that when I flip a switch, water comes out that I don't have to go and, and pump about a hundred times before water comes out and it's often dirty. Thank you, Lord, for this bed that I slept in because there are those who don't even have a bed. They sleep on cardboard boxes. Thank you, Lord, for working toilets. Thank you, Lord, for modern plumbing because 50% of the world or more still have to walk 50 to 100 meters to use the bathroom. And I simply complain that my wife is taking a little bit longer than she should. Thank you, Lord, for modern plumbing. Thank you, Lord, for the food you give me every day. You see, that's why the scripture says, and you know this verse, in everything give, thanks. Because when you view the things that you have as from God and His grace, then the spirit of thanksgiving naturally is a part of an attitude that you have cultivated. But we don't do that, do we? We've got to be careful. Because if we don't have a thankful heart, understanding that all good things come from above, then we will slowly, perhaps unintentionally, become like a Pharisee. As if these things are owed me. Nothing, my friends, is owed you. You and I have what we have and are who we are. By the grace of God. It's as simple as that. How one views grace in their life is a great indicator of their spiritual life. Do you view grace as something entitled or something undeserved? The Pharisees saw it as an entitlement. The tax collector saw it as something undeserved. Grace. Is heaven, salvation, the eternal life, an entitlement owed to you because you're good? Or is heaven, salvation, the eternal life, a gracious gift from God that you and I do not deserve? That question will align your spiritual life. I hope you will ask it of yourself. I hope you will ask it of the favorite pastor or preacher that you download on YouTube. How do they view grace? What do they teach about grace? That's important for you to understand. The third criteria, look with me. How does the Pharisee see himself? How does the tax collector see himself? I pick up in verse 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Verse 12. I fast twice a week and I give tithes to all that I possess. That is the prayer of the Pharisee. Look at verse 13. The tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. The Pharisee saw himself as righteous, deserving of God's grace. Why? Because through his outward actions, his good works of fasting two times a week, imagine that, he was so proud of it, and giving tithes of all that he made, made him worthy to pray to God. 
he truly believed his outward actions spoke of his inward spiritual condition, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Spiritual actions do not equate to spirituality. That's why I've said many times, we love having you come to church. We're glad that you're here. But coming to church, your church attendance doesn't tell me anything about your relationship with God. Because some of you come, and although I don't know of it, I can probably guess. You're sitting here this morning thinking about where you're going to take mom for lunch. You come to church, you're here physically. But in your mind, every week, that's an opportunity to plan next week's schedule. Or think about the things you've got to buy at the grocery store that afternoon. Some of you think that if you bring a Bible here, it's a sign of your spirituality. Praise God for that. I'm glad you bring your Bibles. That's part of a Christian's responsibility to be prepared when they worship. And yet it, I see it so often. People bring Bibles, but they never open it. What's the point? Now, while tangible spiritual actions are important as a testimony of your faith, they do not replace what true spirituality is, which is a proper view of oneself and his relationship with God. The tax collector simply says in verse 13, I'm a sinner. True spirituality is an acknowledgement of your standing as a sinner, unable to reach God even with any good works, and then the recognition that God has enabled a way by which man can approach God through faith in Him, specifically in Jesus Christ and His finished work. And therefore, that is the recognition of one who has the right perspective of themselves. A sinner whose standing as a sinner affords them no right and yet they can humbly come before God, enabled by His grace through the finished work of His Son. But the Pharisee didn't see it like that. He saw himself not as a sinner, but someone worthy. I mean, this guy is enumerating to God the number of days he's fasted and how much he's given to God. When was the last time, I hope you never do this, when was the last time you gave a laundry list to God? Oh God, I just want to let you know, I prayed 64 times this week. I made it through 84 chapters of the Bible this week. I gave 10.2% more than everyone else, I'm sure. Oh, by the way, God, you should know, perfect attendance at church and Bible study. I know you don't say that audibly, I hope not, in your private prayers, but I know you think it. Lord, here's all that I've done. I expect a bit of return on investment, God. And by the way, once I've done all these things, please bless me with a business deal. I need a promotion, God. Oh, as if God cannot see through us. This Pharisee is doing just that. He's telling God, imagine that, he's telling God what he's done. As if to say, God, I, I'm worthy. The tax collector, 
simply a sinner. You see, the third criteria to cutting through the hype of a person's spirituality is asking this question number three of yourself and of others. How does one see themselves? How does one see themselves? How do you see yourself? As someone inherently worthy or as someone inherently unworthy to approach God? When the question is asked of you, who are you? Who are you? How do you answer? Do you give them your name? I'm Stephen Tan. Do you give them your occupation? I'm the senior pastor of this church. How do you greet someone when they ask you, who are you? You know, a great response to that question would be, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Now, I'm not saying you got to do that in every convention you go to. <laughs> hey, who are you? I'm a sinner saved by grace. They think, oh, you're so holy. <laughs> That's not the point. But you should be thinking that. It should come out in your conversation. Boy, that would be a great conversation starter. But that's what you and I are because that's who all of us are, no more, no less. Sinners saved by grace. Let's unpack that. Sinner, one who has fallen short of God's perfect standards. We don't even live up to God's standards. If you go around thinking you're not a failure, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Every single one of us is a failure. We have failed God's perfect standard of holiness. Romans 3.23 is so clear on that. You and I cannot reach the standard of God's perfection. We are all sinners. We are failures. If you ever hear someone that says he's not a sinner, you have him read the Bible, especially the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 3. Hopefully he will be convicted. No one has met God's standards. All have fallen short. Saved. What does that word mean? We all walk around saying, well, we're saved. We're saved. When you claim to be saved, that means you are one needing salvation. If you are saved, the implication is that you could not save yourself, right? I'm saved. That means someone else saved you. You must be humble because you are saved. If you have a proud person who says they are saved, they do not understand the concept in its fullness of what it means to be saved. If a drowning man, listen carefully, if a drowning man tells you his story, you know what, I almost drowned, but then I saved myself. You know what we call that? We call that swimming. Think. If a drowning man claims to have saved himself, that's just swimming. If a drowning man tells you his story that he was drowning and he was saved, everyone's assumption is someone else saved him, right? That's the reality. And yet, here we are saying we're saved, but we do not live as if there was a person with the name of Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place and was resurrected three days later. To be saved means someone had to rescue you. Why? By grace. One who didn't deserve to be rescued. You and I, my friends, have done nothing, not in fasting, not in tithing, not in good works, to have merited God's saving grace. You know, when people really understand by grace we are saved, it changes your perspective. You stop competing because 
It's not about impressing God. He didn't need to be impressed to save you. He was unimpressed by you. But then he chose in his own free will because of his love and compassion to send his son to die in your place. Oh, what a great response. You and I are sinners saved by grace. I think the tax collector understood that. The Pharisee didn't. And yet, how is it that there are so many Christians running around who live as if they're perfect people, loved by God, deserving of His blessings. Oh Lord, I'm so blessed because you love me. Well, that's true. They forget that they're sinners saved by grace. But it builds up arrogance in Christianity. It builds up arrogant Christians when people forget that they are sinners saved by grace, but they are only loved by God and therefore blessed by Him. We've got the focus in all the wrong places. It wasn't the first time, I'm sure, that this tax collector came to the temple. It wasn't the first time that the Pharisee came to the temple. They probably came often, and yet one always viewed himself as a sinner where God's mercy and grace was extended upon him. One of my favorite stories is of a man. He dialed the wrong number, and he got the following recording. I know for some of the newer young people in our congregation, you don't understand what an answering machine is, but uh, it's when you call, they don't pick up, and uh, there's a message just to explain it. But he dialed the wrong number and got the following recording. I'm not available right now, but I thank you for caring enough to call. I'm making some changes in my life. Please, please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of those changes. Everyone wants to make a change in life. If you were to cut off people who detract you from walking with the Lord, who would make the cut? If others were making a cut and taking away people who detract them from their walk with the Lord, would you be one of them? You see, I would cut those who do not understand how they view themselves. Do not surround yourself with men and women full of pride and arrogance, even if they are Christians. Cut them off. They are not healthy for you to associate with because they do not understand the depth, the concept of a sinner saved by grace. When you can have that percolating in your life every day. You and I will live a more Christ-like life because as grace has been showered upon us, we will express grace to others. Because if one is already perfect, then there is no need to change. They're just waiting for others to change with them. And yet the Bible says, examine your own life. The concluding verse, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus' assessment must have shocked the listener. Because everyone who heard the story assumed that the Pharisee was the righteous one. 
And yet he said he was the tax collector who went back home justified. That's a technical word meaning declared righteous. It was the tax collector who was righteous. The Pharisee was not. In a story that I gave earlier, in the example, when you have the pastor and the government official coming to church, it would have shocked you to know that the pastor was not the one who was going to heaven. He was not righteous. He's going to hell. It was the government official. And the point of this parable, shock value and all, is that those who think of themselves more highly than they should, should be humbled and come to the realization, perhaps, that they are not as spiritual as they think. And in our assessment of others, we should do the same. So forget the hype. As you are assessing yourself, as you are assessing others, don't believe in the hype. Ask yourself these diagnostic questions and ask it of others. How do I and how do they view God? How do I and how do they view grace? How do I and how do they view themselves? That should get through the fluff. That should cut through the hype and get you to the root person. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It has challenged my own life to examine these questions in my own life as well. Do I properly reflect you through the way I live? Do I express through my action that I am a sinner saved by grace? Do I extend grace to others? Do I thank you for all of your goodness in my life? Lord, may our congregation ask themselves these questions and then be transformed by the prompting and the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that as we are sent forth into the world, we will be unique, not because of who we are, but we are unique because we are sinners saved by grace. In Jesus' name we pray.